Well, good morning. This um, is uh, an exciting uh, morning for us, obviously going to two services and being able to space things out just a little bit more uh, for comfort reasons and also um, to help uh, us in the prospect of inviting others uh, to come to New Life. Uh, now we've got room, so uh, excited to see what God's going to do in the coming weeks and months as we continue our journey in the book of John, which we are continuing here this morning in chapter 2. And uh, as I was preparing for this morning's message, um, the first section of Scripture that we're going to look at just brought back a bunch of memories for me uh, growing up in upstate New York, in Syracuse, New York, in a, an Italian Roman Catholic family. And um, it, uh, it actually made me think of, of a joke that I don't usually use to open up a sermon with, but I couldn't resist. And I think you'll see where I'm going with it in just a minute. But how can you tell the difference between an Italian wedding and an Italian funeral? There's one less person at the funeral. (laughs) Seriously, weddings are a big deal. You know, funerals are a big deal, you know, uh, for us Italians. Uh, The weddings can be big, really big. Uh, in big churches, they can be very extravagant as well. I mean, there's music, there's dancing, there's wine, and there's a ton of food, a ton of food. And uh, I mean, we eat it for weeks. And if the wedding happens to be in the middle of the winter, what's really, really good about it is that you can make as much as you want, and you don't have to worry about refrigerate- refrigeration, you just put it on your porch. And that's, that's what my mom used to do. She would cook starting like in, at Thanksgiving in our front porch. It was glassed in, but it was a front porch. It acted as our, as our freezer. So um, the other thing that, that's interesting about Italian weddings is that um, you have relatives that, I mean, you didn't even know you had showing up. I mean, they just like come out of the woodwork. And you wonder, are you just are you here for the food? I mean, what's I don't know who you are, and and of course, uh, you know, a good Italian grandmother, you know, would be amiss if she didn't see her grandchildren and take a little cheek here and give it a nice big tweak like this. Does anybody anybody here ever experience that? Yep, in the back, there's a couple of hands. So, yes, what was that? Oh, okay, yeah. So you say, well, well, Paul, why do you bring it up? It's because this morning we're going to be talking about a wedding. And it's going to be very similar to the what kind of wedding that I've described to you, only it's not Italian. It's Jewish. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together uh, this morning. Thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher and our guide this morning, um, that you would help us to see things clearly about the Lord Jesus and that uh, we, wherever we are in our faith journey, Lord, that we would respond accordingly. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we begin chapter 2, we're going to get a glimpse into the power and the passion and the promise of Jesus. And in this chapter, what we're going to see is that Jesus proves that he is the Son of God by his power and by his passion 
for his father's house. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 2, and we're going to look first at the power of Jesus. And it begins by talking about the wedding at Canaan, at Cana. So John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan. And by the way, the, the third day is most likely a reference to the third day since Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel or um, uh, the, the disciples, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and, and such. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So here we see that Jesus and his disciples had been invited to a wedding in uh, Cana, and his mother was also there. And it looks very much like she was involved with the wedding, helping out and... Um, this may suggest that this might have been a family uh, uh, individual or a relative or a family friend that was getting married. And what you have to understand about Jewish weddings, very similar to Italian weddings, they're, they're very important. Um, it was not only a celebration of the bride and groom, which you would expect at a wedding, but it was a celebration of the families as well. For that matter, it was a celebration for the entire community. So probably one way to think about it is like a family reunion. If you've ever had one of those, again, you know, people just, just come. Relatives that you don't see very often. Well, they showed up. And a well-planned and executed event would have brought honor to the groom, to his family, and to the entire community. This is very important to understand. The, now, the, the host was responsible for providing the wine as well. And uh, you have to understand, this, he was providing the wine not just for an afternoon celebration. Because these celebrations often lasted seven days a week. So you have to furnish enough wine to get you through an entire week. And... Um, Wine itself in Jesus' day was, was a, a part of everyday life for uh, Jewish people. And it's really that way today in many parts of the world. If you've had a chance to travel, to go to different countries, you will find that that is the case. And uh, just to preclude all the emails and things that might be coming my way afterwards, yes, it was fermented, okay? So I just wanted to settle that right now. Um, now, drunkenness, obviously, is um, condemned in Scripture. Uh, we're, we're not to be intoxicated. We're not to be drunk with wine or strong drink. But wine is actually a blessing from God. And it's a blessing that God actually promised to the people of Israel if they would keep his covenant. So you can, if, if you want references afterwards, let me know. I'll give you all the references that, that you want. But, but this is not a message on alcohol. It's not a message on drinking wine and all of that. But I do feel like I need to mention at least a few things that Scripture says about alcohol, uh, about wine in particular, and even strong drinks. So I'm just going to kind of bullet point these. 
Wine is a gift from God. Abundance of wine was a special blessing from God. Wine is designed to gladden the heart. Wine and strong drink was used in rejoicing before God. It was given as an offering and it had to be tithed on. No wine was synonymous with God's judgment. No wine was a picture of the absence of joy. Now, those are just some of the things that Scripture teaches us about wine. And here's the problem. They ran out of it. They ran out of wine. And running out of wine in that culture would have been a disgrace to the groom and his family. It would have um, brought shame upon everybody who was involved with the wedding. And it would have dishonored all of the guests. And you have to understand, it's not like they could have gone to the servants and said, hey, would you uh, get on your uh, donkey or your camel and you know, go on down to the drive through liquor store and pick up some more, right? That wasn't going to happen. So Jesus' mother says to Jesus, they have no wine. I mean, that's not even a question. I mean, doesn't that feel weird? You know, they have no wine. If I was Jesus, I would have probably said, and, you know, what do you want me to do about it? You know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's really an odd thing here. It seems like Mary was presuming upon Jesus, but on the other hand, it also shows that she had great faith because she believed her son could remedy the situation, rectify the problem if he so choose to do so. But on the other hand, Jesus is not a cosmic genie who we can command. And he was not there to wait on his mother's beck and call either. So Jesus responds, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The first thing that stands out to me here is how Jesus addresses uh, Mary. He, he could have called her uh, mater or mother, but he doesn't. He says, woman. And by the way, he also calls Mary woman someplace else in Scripture, too. You recall? It's when he was at the cross, on the cross. And he was looking down, and I believe it was John that was with her, and he says, woman, you know, behold your son. You know, son, you know, John, John, behold your mother. Um so Jesus is not being disrespectful here. It's actually an informal form of address. But in so doing, Jesus is also teaching all those around and us an important truth. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't show partiality, not even to his own mother. She gets no special treatment just because she's his mother. Mary must come to Jesus the same way everybody else does, as a sinner in need of a Savior. And if that was true for Mary, how much more is it true for us? You know, you don't get in with Jesus simply because your, your mom or dad know Jesus or that your 
grandmother or grandfather uh, knows Jesus. And in fact, God has no grandchildren. You are either a child of God or you're not. And so this is something for us to consider, to understand. You may have been the recipient of being raised in a wonderful Christian home, but that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christ follower. You don't become a child of God by growing up in a religious home or going to church. You, you become a Christian by receiving him into your life as Lord and Savior. And that means you have to repent of your sins and you have to bend your knee to King Jesus and say, you're God, I'm not, and I will follow you the rest of my life. The second thing that stands out to me here is Jesus' gentle rebuke uh, that he gives to his mother. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the Greek, it literally reads, what is that to you and me? Um, The New International Version, uh, NIV 84, says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. See, you have to remember, Jesus came to earth to do the will of his father, not the will of his mother, although he was an obedient child. And what is clear here is is that Jesus is reminding her of his mission. You know, he didn't come to earth to to do little miracles here to make sure, you know, everybody is, you know, well-fed, you know, clothed and everything else. And when Mary has something that she wants Jesus to do, she just turns to Jesus and Jesus does it because he's the loving, doting son. Jesus was on mission And he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He says, my hour has not yet come. And and although we could talk about that now, I would just simply say that as we progress through John's gospel, we begin to see what this means uh, more clearly. Because he refers to it several times. What is clear now is that Jesus doesn't want to reveal himself to the entire nation of Israel. And even as you look at his miracles, which he does, he says, well, I mean, then why does he do the miracles? Yeah, he does the miracles, and he does the miracles for a particular reason. But even then, when you look at them, especially here in John's gospel, they're not done in such a way as to draw a lot of attention to him. They're done almost secretly. And even this miracle here is done discreetly. So after Jesus' polite correction, we see that Mary continues to demonstrate great faith and trust in her son because she then turns to her servants, right, and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Listen to him. And she was right. So let's go on, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. Verse 9. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, 
Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, this is pretty amazing. So you got six of these stone jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons of water. That means that Jesus turned roughly 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. That's a lot of wine. And it was common practice uh, during a feast, especially one that lasted several days, to dilute the wine with water as the feast progressed. They would serve the good wine first. And then uh, as the, the feast went on, uh, the people who had been drinking the wine were no longer able to discern the lower quality of it uh, as they continued to drink, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and, and of course, that cut down on cost, too. So that was a, a common pra practice. They wouldn't have noticed um, the decreasing quality of the wine. And so what we learned from verse 10 is that Jesus not only miraculously turned water into wine, but he turned it into high-quality wine, okay? So, I mean, that, that's another really good miracle. This was not Carlo Rossi, you know, Yellowtail or Sutter Home. This was the good stuff, the NIV, again, 84, 90, uh, NIV 84 says, um, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Now, just a little disclaimer. Um, since I am speaking of wine in such a positive fashion, please don't leave here and think my pastor said I can go to the liquor store and just load up, you know, on, on wine and strong drink here. Um, now, verse 11 says, um, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Jesus' disciples, up to this point, believed in Jesus from the testimony of others and by Jesus' own words. But now they believe because they have just witnessed a great miracle. Jesus' power is further evidence that he is, in fact, the Son of God. But I've always wondered why Jesus chose this occasion for his first miracle. And I'm not sure we can ever come to a conclusion on that. I've, I've given some thought to it. I'm not sure exactly why he did it. Um, maybe it was um, in fulfillment of, of prophecy. There are some scriptures in the Old Testament that seem to, to allude um, to this in a way. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, Amos 9, for instance. And if we remember, too, that the absence of wine in joy was a consequence of sin, then Jesus turning water into wine can then be seen as a picture of mercy and grace a kind of a redeeming quality which would fit Jesus' mission 
as the redeemer of the world. And later on, Jesus himself would declare that he came to what? Proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus may have also have chosen this occasion as his first miracle because he wants us to know that he cares. That he cares about us. He cares about our needs. He cares about our hopes and our dreams. And the hope of a wedding offers the, 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 the hope of, that every wedding offers. I mean, when you think about it, you, you get married because you have an idea of, of what's going to happen or what you want to happen. It, it carries the seeds of hope for the future, for a wonderful life together, for a family. And so I think that this is something we can all relate to. And Jesus steps right into it. Jesus came to earth to become one of us. And he meets us in the ordinary, mundane, everyday events of life, including weddings. But make no mistake as we look at this passage, the point of the story is not that Jesus is, is able uh, to meet our needs, though he is able to do that. The point of this story is to prove that he is the Son of God. Remember John's purpose for the entire book uh, or, or gospel that we're in here. So Jesus proves um, that he is the Son of God by demonstrating his power over the elements in turning water into wine. And our response should be the same as that of the disciples. And you can see it right there in the text. They believed. They believed. They believed before, but they believe now. They believe more now. And I think for us as Christians, our belief, our faith ought to be getting stronger. As we see God at work in our lives as we see God at work in the lives of others, as we immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. You can sit around all day and pray and say, God, give me faith and you'll never get it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to be in God's word. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's saying, well, Paul, I know all this stuff. I, I believe Jesus is God and all that. Yeah, I know. But we need to dig in. We need to read these stories over and over. We need to become convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. If we're going to live the victorious Christian life. So... In verse 13 through 17, Jesus goes on to demonstrate that he is the Son of God, not in his power, but in his passion for his Father's house. In verse 13, we read, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Much of John's gospel is centered around the Passover. And that is intentional. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he's wanting to make sure that we don't forget who Jesus is and why he came. And when it came to the Passover, Jews from all over the place would travel to Jerusalem. The city would swell to well over a million people. And many people traveled long distances to get there. And they would go to the temple. They would pay their temple tax. And then they would offer their sacrifices there as an act of worship. But God allowed people who lived great distances away to actually not have to bring their animals with them, to have to worry about that. What they would do is that they would sell their goods, sell their animals back home. They would bring their money to Jerusalem where they would then exchange it and be able to purchase the animals needed for sacrifice. On top of that, they would also exchange their currency for the currency of the day, the Tyrian coinage, in order to pay the temple tax. Now, as a result of this, a religious animal market emerged, as well as a whole industry of money changers. So what began as a ministry and a convenience for those who were traveling long distances suddenly became a big business. Eventually, this buying and selling made its way into the temple, to the court of the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles weren't allowed in any further than that. But they could come into the temple to the court of the Gentiles, and the Jews were supposed to greet them there. They were supposed to engage them in conversation and tell them about their God. That was what was supposed to happen. But it became a meat market. It became a a big business. And any Gentile looking for the one true God would have been appalled. They, they would have discovered, you know, this, this religious thing that the Jews got going on is a big business. I don't think there's any reality to this. And I can't help but wonder if people sometimes who come into our churches feel the same way. When they see all the flash, when they, 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 they see the, 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 the people clamoring for money. When Jesus entered the temple, it didn't look anything like a place of worship. It didn't look anything like a house of prayer. The temple was corrupted. Worship was perverted. And he was so angry that he made a a whip made out of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Because you figure if you drive the sheep and the oxen out, the people are going to follow them. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. And then he told those who sold pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Notice Jesus didn't say our father's house. You're making our father's house into a den of traders, a house of trade. Rather, he said, my father's house. Jesus 
is claiming that God is his father, which then means he claims to be the son of God. John provides some commentary for us in verse 17. He says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. See, Jesus' actions caused the disciples to remember what David had written in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, we read, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. See, the Jews expected the Messiah to come and to cleanse the temple and to reform the temple. And so in the minds of the disciples, this was just further confirmation that Jesus was in fact the Messiah because they saw what Jesus did and they remembered what David had said. So just as his power proved that Jesus was the Son of God, so too does his passion for his Father's house. Now there's one more proof of his sonship, and we see it in verses 18 through 21, and that is the promise of Jesus. Verse 18 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see this, that at every juncture, every testimony, every miracle, every proof, you have this comment that they believed. See, the Jews wanted to know, what right do you have to do this? By what authority do you do this? So they demanded a sign to validate that he was the Messiah. Well, Jesus already gave them a sign, and they missed it. His passion for his father's house. It was his zeal for his father's house. That was a sign tied to the Old Testament, and they missed it. But Jesus gives them another sign in the form of a promise. If they destroy this temple, he will raise it back up in three days. So they were in stunned disbelief because um, the reconstruction of the second temple took 46 years. There's no way that he could do that. They didn't understand that Jesus was referring to his own body, specifically his death and subsequent resurrection. The promise of Jesus's resurrection and its fulfillment would be the final proof that anyone would need to know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And John tells us that his disciples didn't really understand this completely until after Jesus had risen from the dead. It says, then they remembered. They remembered what he had said about this, and once again, they believed. And so too should we. John concludes with a little bit more commentary in verse 23. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, many people believed when they saw Jesus perform his miracles, his signs. And by the way, John prefers to use the word signs over miracles because he wants us to understand that Jesus didn't just go around wowing people with miracles. These were signs that pointed to a greater spiritual reality that ultimately pointed to Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, the Christ. And they were meant to validate his mission and his person. I like what D.A. Carson said about this. Uh, I don't have it up on screen, but this is what he said in in his commentary. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And I think you would all agree that seeing is not necessarily believing. It's an interesting wordplay in verse 23 and verse 24. Um, it, it really is, is, is very interesting here. In verse 23, um, the word believe is used. In verse 24, um, we have the word entrust, depending on what your translation is. But regardless of the English word there, in the Greek, it's the same word. So there's a word play that's, that's happening here um, when it says, many believed in his name, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Uh, Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, these people believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in them. That's the sense of what is being said here. It was one thing to respond to a miracle, but quite something else to commit oneself to Jesus Christ and to continue in his word. And I think you, re- you know that from reading the Gospels. People followed Jesus sometimes because they just wanted to see another miracle. They wanted to be wowed. They wanted their bellies to be full. They wanted another demon to be cast out. They had all sorts of reasons for following. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. That's not the kind of faith that Jesus is after. Temporary faith based on signs is not sufficient. It's not saving faith. So Jesus did not entrust or commit himself to those who believed because he knew that their faith was spurious. He knew what was in their hearts and he knows what is in our hearts. We can fool others. We can fool ourselves. But we can't fool God. He knows our hearts 
He is the omniscient God of the universe, and he knows everything about us. You know, Psalm 39, we read that earlier. God, you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. He did not entrust himself to these unbelieving believers, but here's the good news. He does entrust himself to those who trust him. He reveals himself. He makes himself known to those who love him. So as I conclude this morning, I want to ask, what kind of faith do you have? Is it saving faith? Is it temporal faith? I want to remind you that Jesus proved that he was the Son of God by his power and by his passion for his Father's house and by the promise that he made and fulfilled to rise from the dead. And here's the cool thing. If if Jesus has the power to change the elements, he has the power to change you. If Jesus has the power to turn water into wine, to transform water into wine, he has the power to transform you and me. For those of you that are stumbling in your faith, um, again, he knows your heart. He knows what you're going through. He has the power to transform your failures, your struggles, your brokenness into something wonderful if you'll surrender to him. And if you know Jesus, if you trust Jesus, keep trusting him no matter how bad things seem to get. If you're here this morning or watching online and you're a sold-out follower of Christ, you're, 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 you're all in. I want to encourage you. Scripture says, you know, if any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. We need to be vigilant. We need to be on guard because we have a very real enemy whose sole purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And there's nothing more that he would love to do than to rob us of our joy. Jesus came that we might have life, that our joy may be made full. Maybe that's why he did that first miracle in Canaan. So put on the full armor of God and stand firm in your faith. And remember that it's wonderful and joyful as that wedding feast was in Cana and Galilee, it cannot compare to that future wedding feast that we're all looking forward to, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Invitation has gone out. I hope you've all responded. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word Lord, again, I just thank you for the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us. Lord, help us in the midst of difficulty, trial, or even when times are good, that we would continue to believe, even as the disciples believed, that our faith would grow stronger and that, Lord, that you would use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.